Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Welcome back to The Epic Narrative. I do like my theme music. I don't know if everybody does, but man, I just love percussion. I just, I think we made a good choice. <laughs> I know some of you guys have been listening to listening listening to this for almost a year. Can you believe it? Almost a year we've been doing this. This is an epic story. I love it. Anyways, we left off. Absalom had been gaining momentum. His following kept increasing at Hebron. The palace was now full. <clears throat> Lots of people were confident in what's going on. There's still a pretty good group of people slash officials from David's palace that the 200 that came down with with them. They're still not sure what they're doing. To them, this is all part of a celebration. More and more people keep coming. The party's going on. They have no reason to leave. So there's still a lot of deception going on, but a, but but the evidence of the behind-the-scenes activity of Ahithophel and, and um, Absalom is quite clear because you don't get this kind of momentum without doing some legwork. So, so part of the, the momentum-carrying activities would be many of the servants would be going from Jerusalem back to Hebron, uh, just not just for Absalom, but for the logistics of the party, for the logistics and needs of the various officials, uh, delivering messages back and forth, and and some of these messengers are getting the you know they get the idea they they see what's going on they, <clears throat> they excuse me they they hear what's going on they're in rooms where things are being said they are around tables where things are being said and eventually and I don't know how this happens other than the servants because it says a messenger came and told David the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Now, David knows exactly what that means, and he knows exactly what to do. David had a choice to make right there. He heard, he hears from a messenger who probably heard from a servant, who probably heard from an attendant, who probably got uh, had interactions with another messenger who was sending, you know, delivering messages to various uh, elders and leaders around the around the country. And the message was Absalom's going to make his move. Absalom's going to take over the throne. Absalom, remember, because Absalom had sent messages to all the villages saying, when you hear the trumpet sound, uh, announce that Absalom is now king. So those messengers had to go back out and say, we're about to do this. You got to get ready to blow the trumpet. That's when... This messenger comes to David and says the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And David knows knows exactly what happened. Now, I'm guessing internally David knows not only knows what happened, but he thinks, why didn't I know? Like, I should have seen this. Like, what? how did I get caught off guard by this? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive, that phrasing. The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. It carries with it the weight that the fact that this isn't a military takeover. This is a political coup. Yes, the military, there will be military people involved, but this is a political coup. This this involves the hearts of the people. Politics have been going on now for years, David, and the hearts of the people are with Absalom, and Absalom is coming to take over the throne. I'm sure David had heard how large this party was getting down in Hebron. I'm sure that he had heard the popularity that that Absalom was was uh, not churning. What do I want to say? Cultivating. Thank you. Cultivating outside the city gates over the last four years. He he had to have known some pieces, but he hadn't put them together. Maybe he didn't want to put them together, but he hadn't put them together. You know, maybe he maybe he understood. You know, Absalom is he's a hurting guy. He killed his brother. Uh, I really didn't discipline him. There's not a lot of work. You know, I, I it's too late now for me to, you know, to disciple him in leadership. Maybe he even knew that that uh, Ahithophel was spending time with, with Absalom. 
And in spending time with him, he was hoping maybe Ahithophel was giving him that kind of leadership development that David couldn't do because David had kind of abdicated his role as a father and leader of Absalom because of, of his lack of discipline in the fathering role he had had his entire life. So he gets the word, and David says to all of his officials who were there with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials answered him and said, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. So David's first move is to protect the family and the city from war. That's what he that's what he's talking about. He says, I'm going to we, we we need to get out of here because he had a choice. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city that had not that had stood for over 500 years without being taken before David came along because it was so well defended, defendable, so easily defended. It was, it was very difficult to take over the city. David could have hunkered down. David could have said, you know what? He wants, to, he wants a country. He's got to take it from my dying hand. And he could have just hunkered down. He could have said, close the gates. I want guards on the wall. I want everybody to get ready for a siege. And when Absalom gets here, we are going to fight this to the death. But David's heart, remember David's heart. Remember his perspective. And I know it's not 100% perfect, but his perspective was, what is best for my family? What is best for my people? What is best for the city? If I don't, if, if I don't just walk away and, in essence, trust this all to God and let God figure this out, if I'm going to make this happen, if I'm going to stand on my call of God, the anointing of God on my life to to make me king in Jerusalem, if I don't defend this to the death, like that was not his perspective. His perspective was, okay, I got to do what's best for the for the nation. I got to do what's best for my people. I got to do what's best for my family. And it's best not to have war. This is a military genius. And he says, it's best not to have war. He's in a, he's in a city that could be defended for dozens of years without ever being taken, and he could claim to be the king of, of Israel by sitting on the throne in Jerusalem for the rest of his life, probably. And Absalom could run the rest of the country, and it wouldn't matter because David could technically keep claiming that he was the king of, of Israel because the throne was never taken from him. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't defend his anointing. He doesn't defend his calling until the death. He says, it's time to get out of here. And his officials... So these are the officials that that deal with David more on the day-to-day, right? The 200 officials that Absalom took were lower-level government employees that had really no clue what was going on but had access probably to, we'll call it paperwork, or access to the files on how to run the country. And he had the elders of the, of the various you know, large tribes and, and villages on, on his side. And those are the guys that kind of kept coming to Hebron and showing more and more support because they knew what was going on. The 200 lower officials didn't quite really understand what was going on. The, the, the government officials that are with David says, listen, we will do whatever you tell us to do. You want to leave? We'll leave. You, you want us to fight? We will fight. David's like, no, we need to get out of here. We need to get out of here now. Do not pack up a cart. Do not take food with you. Seriously, grab your family and let's go. I want everybody moving out, 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 out. Get in the streets. Get out, get out, get out, get out. So the king set out with his entire household, all of his wives, all of his children. It says he left 10 concubines back at the palace to take care of it. I don't, you know, I don't know. It seems like a weird thing to do for me to take care of the palace. So I'm guessing concubines had roles of leadership on the logistics of running the palace. They oversaw the servants, the they oversaw the kitchen, they oversaw decorations, the cleaning, um, guest relations, uh, uh, what do they call it, em- emissary greetings, uh, that sort of thing. They they ran the palace. 
So he left those concubines behind so that the palace would run smoothly. This is uh, this is for for being taken over by a political coup. This is about as smooth as you can make it for the guy who's coming in. Most <laughs> most kings would have been blowing things up, lighting things on fire. They would have desolated and decimated the palace so that nothing of value was left. They would have. They, they would have rather have thrown the treasures in the street and told the people they could have them than, than let the next guy in have access to the treasures of the palace. David was like, let's just empty the place now and I'll leave the, I'll leave the people who run the palace behind so that the palace will continue to run smoothly. So the servants, because he didn't take all the sl- servants with him, all the assistants, all the attendants, they all stayed behind. They were going to continue to run the palace. It was under new management. But the whole staffing of it was going to stay behind. So he takes all the family and advisors. He leaves the the management staff behind. And it says, uh, the king set out with his entire household. The, the king said, da, 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 da. Okay, so, so the king set out with all his people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kirinthites and the Palinthites and all 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath, and they marched before the king. So David and his family just get the best way to describe it is a parade. They're all headed out of the city. Trust me, the city is a buzz with information. Everybody knows. What's what's going down? And maybe they know, maybe not the whole truth. They might know portions of it. They're sharing it with each other. Some are exaggerations. Some is rumors. Some is truth. But trust me, the city is ablaze with gossip right now. And then they see the king and all his family marching out. And all of the these 600 soldiers are with him. And they're working their way out. And where are the soldiers from? They're all foreigners. They're all foreigners from the land of the Philistines. That's what's amazing. These are guys that that David, he didn't enslave them. These are guys that voluntarily came under the authority of David and, and took a covenant to give their life to protect him. So the king says to them, to their to their leader, Ittai, he says, Why why are you why should you come with us? Go back, stay with Absalom, because you're a foreigner. You're you're exiled from your homeland. You you came only a few, like you haven't even been here that long. You haven't been here that long. Your your like extended families are all back in in Philistines or Philistine. Philist, you're over there. <laughs> Why should you come wander with us? I don't even know if I'm where I'm going. I don't know if I'll ever be back. Go back, take your 600 men with you, and may the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. David David has this again, he has his heart, right? He says he says if I'm if I'm being rejected, if I'm being pushed out, if this is the way this if this is the path that the Lord has chosen to move me on in my calling, then I'm going to walk it. This is what's amazing, right? That, and that's that's heaven. That that's a heavenly perspective. If this is what God wants to do, if this is, if this is the only way He could get me to move, like maybe I haven't been paying attention. Maybe the Lord wanted me to give over my throne to one of my sons a while ago, and I just haven't been paying attention. Maybe my work is done. I mean, we took Jerusalem, and we brought in the ark, and we set up 24-7 worship in it, and, and the awareness of God's presence you know, is now is now noted by everyone who comes in the city 24 hours a day, and that's the way it should be, right? We should always be aware of God's presence around us, always. And that awareness should be you know, exampled, and it was exampled in the city, and it's a beautiful thing and an amazing thing, and and he's like, maybe my role here is done. Like, there, listen, Itai, there's really no reason for you to stay. You can leave. You can leave. You go back to your people. It's going to be fine. I'll figure it out. I don't, I don't even know what's going on right now. I don't even know where I'm headed now, let alone where I might end up 
or how long I'll be there. But Ittai says to the king, he goes, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, wherever it means, whether it means my life or death, there will, there will your servant be. So I find this fascinating. He's a Philistine. He followed David from Gath and he claims Yahweh as his Lord. He said, as, as the Lord God lives, I, I believe in God. I believe in your anointing. I believe in your calling. And as long as you're alive, I committed, I covenanted my life to, to protect yours. So I, I appreciate your willingness to be like, you know, you can go really. It's You don't have to stay. But that's not the covenant I made. I didn't make a covenant with you in order to just bail when life got rough. I'm out of here. If you're out of here, I'm out of here. If you're coming back, I'm coming back. If you're sleeping under a rock, I'm sleeping under the next rock. Like nothing's going to happen to you that I, that I don't know about. And if someone kills you, they will have to kill me first because I will make sure that I protect you from that till my dying breath. Wherever your servant is, wherever the sorry, wherever the Lord my King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. So David says to Hittite, "All right." Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. So they have this moment. They're If they're in the city, they're barely in the city. They're, they're, I picture this happening fairly close to the gate. Like David, it, this is like if we go out of the gate, like that's a, a, a point of demarcation. It's like, okay, you actually left the city with me. If I send you back now, then... You're not seen as ever leaving the city with me. You escorted us out. You could you could easily spin that to mean that you are actually going to serve whoever is king, and I wasn't king anymore. So you escorted us out from you know from the from the city. So David gives him a really easy way to maintain his life, maintain his families, and and maintain their job. But he remains loyal to David and and committed to him. And as they leave the city, it says the people cried. The whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. This is this is uh this was pretty crazy. The people in the city the people in the city weren't out for self-preservation. That's how that's that's the culture that David had had cultivated in the city. You remember under under Saul, everyone was out for self-preservation. The people that were surrounding him were all out for self-preservation. They were out for their own political gain, their own wealth, their own family uh, heritage and continuation of family wealth for generations. They did not want to lose what they had worked so hard to gain. If this had been Saul's leadership, everybody in the city would have been running into the palace and pillaging it for its riches. Instead, they're on the roadside, they're on the rooftops and hanging out of the windows and they're saying goodbye to David and they're saying goodbye to the family and they're in tears. They're wailing because the, the king that they love is and, and that loves them is leaving. His leadership is leaving. His his passion is leaving, leaving. And they all understood what it meant. So as they're walking out toward the wilderness, again, they don't really know where they're going. The, the head priest there is Zadok and all the Levites, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So they carried the Ark out of the worship tent, out of the tabernacle. They brought it down to the outskirts of the city. They set it down, and they and Abathar, the other priest, set up a, an altar, and they began to offer sacrifices, to, uh, offer sacrifices to the Lord. My goodness, Bob, you couldn't get that out. And as they do that, they're praying for them, all right? This is this is a, a beautiful, awesome opportunity that Zadok takes with the all the other Levites. They offer sacrifices. The parade of royalty walks by. 
They're praying for them. They're blessing them. I don't know if you've ever been in like a, a line, a prayer line. Uh, some people call them a prayer tunnel or, or fire tunnel. Uh, sometimes it's just prayer, whatever. Like it's just an opera. They all just felt blessed. Like they just, the chief priests were there. The high priests were there. They were, the Levites were there. They were just probably laying hands on them, crying for them, hugging them, blessing them, calling God's favor out for them. As much as they could, they tried to bring comfort and peace and hope to these families that were all leaving. They, you know, I'm sure the, the kids are wondering, you know, where are my toys? Where are my clothes? The wives are wondering, where are my clothes? Where are my, where's the food? How am I going to take care of my, my husband, my children, each other? Like, what's going on? And David doesn't know. He doesn't have any food. He doesn't, nobody has their donkeys. Nobody has their carts. Nobody has their chariots. There is nothing. They are literally, they look like refugees, well-dressed refugees because they're wearing royal clothing, but but refugees, nonetheless, they're just wandering into the wilderness, and there are the Levites, the representation of God. And they, they're praying over them and blessing them, and I'm sure singing over them. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful moment there in the countryside as they leave the city. And the king calls over Zadok, and he says, listen, take the ark of God back to the city. Because the indication here is that Zadok and all the priests were going to go with him. Now that's that's a significant visual to to Absalom to the people of the city to the to the elders of Israel to all those that are supporting Absalom that the Levites and all the priests and the ark of God are now gone. And you can you can claim you can claim all you want. Remember when, when Absalom left, he, he brought God into this. He's like, you know, I, I had a vow. I made a vow, and I I asked God, uh, you know, if he brought me back to the city, I would I would sacrifice to him in Hebron. And David said, go. So so God's a part of this deception, and I'm sure as the momentum behind this, this coup, this takeover was growing, I'm sure he kept thinking, this has to be God's favor. This has to be God's favor. Actually, you know what? God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. So it would have been a significant blow to his narrative, the deceptive narrative, if he showed up and all the priests were gone and the ark was gone and the Levites were gone and they all were with David. So David says to Zadok, listen, take the ark back to the city. And if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and he'll let me see it again. But if I don't find favor, I'm ready. I'll let him do with me whatever he wants to do. Now, I know I know it's dramatic for him to say, if I don't, you know, if the Lord says to me, I'm not pleased with you, I'm ready. And again, that's the concept of, of God that, that David had. And, and it's all throughout the Old Testament. And that is. You know, God can get disappointed and he gets upset and he gets angry and he does bad things to his people, which I don't think is a good concept. I don't think it's a true concept. And I've covered it many times uh, in the podcast. And all I ask you to say to yourself is like, what if Bob's right on this? What if we can view God differently in the Old Testament? So, you know, what what if the perceptions of God also were contained in Scripture, not just the inerrant words that were spoken so david says this i'm ready to go his really what he's communicating is listen zadok i I want you to bring the ark back i want you to bring the ark back because i worked hard to get that back into the city of god i worked hard and i don't want to just yank it out of the city because i'm i'm a little inconvenienced and if this whole move is really orchestrated by God for my goodness, if this whole thing is because it's part of his plan and I just haven't been paying attention, then I'm good with that. But if this whole thing is is orchestrated by the enemy and God's goodness is going to override it and I will come back to the city, I want the ark to be there where it, where, where it should be. I want it to be in the temple, the tabernacle. I want it to be a place of worship still. I don't want it to be with me. So the king also says to Zadok, listen, do you understand me? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son, 
uh, Halmaz <laughs> with you, and Ab- Abathar's son, Jonathan. It's kind of sweet that Abathar named his son Jonathan. You and Abathar return with your two sons. I'll wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar took the Ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. So this is David's first counter move. His first counter move is to send Zadok and his sons and Abathar and his son back to Jerusalem with the Ark. And he says, I'm going to wait in the wilderness until you send me word as to what's going on. In other words, I want you to be informants for me. It's pretty awesome. He goes, you guys are going to be my intel. The two, the two high priests, you guys stay in Jerusalem, but send your sons as messengers to and from my location, which I'm going to tell you where I'm going to be. This is a level of trust that David had in the priests. He informs them. Now, re- now remember, David has 600 men with him, and that's it. Ab- uh, Absalom's coming in basically with the military force, and he says, let's do this. Let's put this together. I'm going to go wait at the at the fords for information from you. You go back and wait in Jerusalem for Absalom to show up. It's pretty awesome. David gets up to the Mount of Olives. So we're only talking like, I don't know. It's not that far. Like maybe, uh, I don't know, 400 yards. Like he's not. He's not that far from the city. He's close. And he's crying. His head is covered. He's barefoot. Uh, the people with him have uh, have their heads covered as well. They're crying. Everybody's upset. Nobody knows where they're going. And David gets told again. He goes, Ahithophel is among the people that are with Absalom. We're getting word now, David, as to the specifics and who's coming with him. And Ahithophel has given him counsel and David says he prays to the Lord he's like Lord turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness because he knows Ahithophel's counsel is like talking with God he's like he's so wise like there's no way I can overtake this there's no way he's such a trusted advisor he knows so much about what's going on that if Absalom listens to him I'm in big trouble so David arrives at the top of the Mount of Olives. And Hushai, Hushi, Hushai, the archite, was there to meet him. And he's in mourning. Like he's torn his robe. He's putting dust on his head. He's so sad over what's happened. And he's probably, he's one of David's most trusted advisors. Absalom, I mean, not Absalom, uh Ahithophel was the, you know, had the highest rank, if you wanted to give it that, like the highest level of influence. But this guy was like number two, like right next to Ahithophel. And if it came to a bottom line choice between the two, David knew I probably can't go wrong with either one's advice, but he generally took Ahithophel's over, over, um, uh, Hishai, Hushai, Hushi, Hushi's. But I'm also thinking that if Ahithophel has been working on this overthrow for the last three or four years, that probably Hushi's uh, counsel has been more more consistent and David has leaned on it more recently than Ahithophel because Ahithophel has been divided in his loyalties. He's been looking for ways to take David down. And it's tough to give people really good advice when you really don't want to go forward with them. When you think their vision for the for their you know for the city or for their company or for the church is no longer something you really are 100 percent behind, and you just as soon find new leadership, it's your wisdom, your counsel to them is probably not going to be 100 percent the best counsel you can come up with. So Hushi meets David, and he's just so sad. Probably in some ways he's thinking, I should have seen this coming. He might have a you know a sense of responsibility over this, but he's a trusted advisor. 
And David meets him and he says, listen, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. <laughs> That's always a nice thing to say to your friends. Listen, I would evidently, you know, by seeing him and the and the state that he's in, he knows that this guy plans on coming with David. He probably even said it when he meets David. He's like, I'm coming with you. I'm never going to leave your side. And David's like, listen, if you come, you're just going to burden me. You're old. Uh, I've got so many other people with me already. But you could actually be a big help to me because you could go back to the city and you could. Now, this is David's next counter move. You could be a spy for me. You could tell Absalom that you are you are a servant of the king. And although you served me, I'm no longer king. So therefore, you no longer want to give me advice. And then you give Absalom advice. But give advice that's frustrating to Ahithophel's advice. Give the opposite or frustrate, not necessarily the opposite, but take Ahithophel's advice and counter, make it counter, make it frustrate, uh, make it too complicated, make it logistically difficult. Find ways to slow him down because you know what I know. I need time. I've got my whole family here. I got only 600 troops right now with me. I don't know where I'm going. I don't have a place to go. I I need time out here in the wilderness. And I need somebody who can frustrate things, who can slow things down back at the palace with really good advice, just advice that's going to slow things down so that you can buy me some time. That is really the best way to support me, not by coming with me. So he leaves. He, he, takes, he takes the job. He goes back to the court to counter and frustrate the advice that Ahithophel is going to give. Now, he's, again, very deeply, obviously deeply grieved by the takeover. And I'm sure he had to do, he knew he was going to have to do a good acting job when Absalom shows up. Because now he's got to run back. I don't know. I mean, Absalom's close to the city when all this is going on. It's... If you had an aerial view of this, Absalom is coming up from Hebron with hundreds of people. And they're prepared for a fight. So he's got military people. He's got, you know, troops that are made up of various, you know, elders and villages, uh, peoples. But they're troops nonetheless. And they are ready to fight. They're ready to take over the city. They, they're going to, they're going to come in and, and push David out. But David's out, right? David's saving the city from all this violence. So David's literally 400 yards away or so on the top of Mount Olive. And he's and he's able to look back and see the city and he's probably can he literally can probably hear the the movement of Absalom's tr- troops, if you want to call them that, Absalom's uh uh takeover party as it's coming in the gates and people are yelling and screaming and some are booing and, and David knows, man, it's, it's close. We're close. I need time. I need you to frustrate what's going on. I need time. And then any advice you or any information you can get me, give it to Zadok or Abathar and they will, they will tell the, their sons and they will bring that information to me. They will send me anything you hear. I need to know. So so Hushi is a confidant of David's. And it says he arrives back at Jerusalem as Absalom is entering the city. So so Hushi's kind of kind of slides back into the city. Now remember, he's got to change really fast because he tore his clothes and put ashes on his head because he was he was siding with David. Now he's got to look the part of a counselor who is loyal to whoever's running the nation. He's got to look like somebody who was, as David left, he he said, good riddance, God bless you. I'm here for the king, and the king is on his way. So I'm guessing he had, a, he had to find a change of clothes. He had to wash his face. He had to comb his hair or put a new turban on. There were lots of little things he had to do because as he's coming into the city, Absalom is also coming into the city. And life is going to get really complicated. Uh, Yeah, we'll keep going. 
we'll keep going because because I think this is kind of all in one all in one movement. Absalom coming in, so we're gonna go to the next chapter, chapter sixteen. David David gone a short distance, and there was Zibia. Now Zibia was a steward of Mephibosheth. <laughs> that name has come back to haunt me. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you know there was a season in which I had to say that name hundreds of times, it seemed like. Probably not hundreds, because I avoided saying it as much as I could. Anyways, so Mephibosheth had his, if you remember, he was found, David found Mephibosheth because he was looking for somebody who was connected to the house of Jonathan, and they found Zibia. Zibia was a servant of Jonathan, and he told them about Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth came and was a part of David's family and part of his his daily meals around the you know the royal family, and he gave all the land that Jonathan had, all the land and livestock he gave to Mephibosheth, and he put Zibia in charge of it because Zibia had twelve sons, if you remember. So he meets Zibia, who's waiting for him. Now, Zibia clearly had loyalties to the house of Saul. He was connected at great lengths to the house of Saul. And he's waiting there, and he has with him a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with bread, raisin cakes, and hundreds of figs and a skin of wine. In other words, he's brought food for everyone in the, in the troops and the family. He knows that they left the the palace quickly. They did not take time. They couldn't. Absalom was on the way. When the messenger says the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom, it was was an indication that the elders and the leaders of, of the tribes are now behind Absalom, and they're on their way here. David, David just, let's run. Everybody out of the palace. Everybody out, 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 out. So when he... When Zibia hears this, he knows that they're going to need food, and some of them are going to need some transportation. So he loads up all a string of donkeys with all the food that they would need, at least for a couple days. Not that it'd be a banquet, but it would be enough to survive until they could find somewhere to go. And the donkeys then could be also used to to carry people, women, children, whatever, uh, old people. They could make a you know. Whatever it, it just there this was this was a huge deal of resources. This would be like, you know, you you you're getting kicked out of your house. You you're running down the street and a neighbor that you you had a few good interactions with, not really relative, not really super uh, friendly with, but he shows up and he gives you his van, a full tank of gas. And, you know, a large to-go order from Chick-fil-A and says, hey, uh, it's the least I can do. I, you know, I heard you were in some troubled times and I, I wanted to bring you a gift. So the king says, so why, why did you bring these? And he says, well, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. In other words, they're all for you. Like, I wanted to bless you. You're in a, you're in a tough situation. And the king says, well, where's the master's grandson? Where's, where's Jonathan's grandson, Mephibosheth? We see David can't even say his name. He just describes who he is. <laughs> That's not true. I'm sure he could say his name. And I'm sure even if you said it and said it correctly, it doesn't sound anything like what I'm saying either because I don't even try doing this stuff with a Middle Eastern accent. Zibia says he stayed in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me, my grandfather's kingdom. You see, Mephibosheth, he stayed behind because his thought was, Absalom will restore my my grandfather, Saul's kingdom. And the king said to Zibia, all that belongs to him is now yours. You've been working the land and working the livestock and giving all the money and resources to him and his family, but now it all belongs to you. Of course, it's interesting because David isn't king anymore. He really can't give this stuff away, but he's letting him know, 
Your loyalty is greatly appreciated. Mephibosheth is in essence part of the rebellion now. And Zibia is promised all the old assets of Jonathan from David. Now, David, again, he can't do anything about it then, but there's a there's this essence of a, of a promise. If I come back into power, then you, you will be the one who, who draws all the resources of the land and the livestock that used to belong to Jonathan. And Zibia humbly bows down. And he says, may I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. He recognizes him as king. He still is humble before the king. He doesn't say, I, I you know, I deserve it. Thank you. Or or anything like that. It's not why he brought the food and the and the uh, transportation to the king. He brought it because he knew that the king needed it, and he and he's loyal and he's a friend. And that's somebody who's always a great encouragement to people who are in trouble. You know, sometimes you can you can be looking at somebody who's having a tough day, and you're looking at them from afar. And you say to yourself, "Wow, somebody should be really nice to them." Well, maybe that thought is in your heart because the Lord's saying, go be nice to them. You can say, but I hardly know them. I mean, really, I, I, you know, I don't really know them. Maybe they're your boss or your boss's boss in this case. And you think, well, they're, you know, they're, they're just having a rough day. Like, I, I need to look out for myself. Zibia didn't look out for himself. Zibia, much like the heart of God, said, I'm going to do what's best for somebody else. Somebody else is going through a tough time. I'm going to bring them what they need. I mean, that's pretty awesome, really. That's pretty awesome. So David uh, continues, right? He, he can't he can't stop. He can't he can't stop. He he's got to keep moving. He's less than a mile away from the city, and Absalom is is in the city. He's coming in the city. And King approaches Baharom, and a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out of there, and his name was Shimi, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. And he pelted David with all and all the king's officials with stones, as though though all the troops and special guard were, were there at David's right and left. They surrounded him, but it didn't matter. He threw stones, he threw dust, he cursed at him, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel, you horrible person. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul. This is all you know, payback from God. God's doing this to you. You reigned where you shouldn't have. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come into ruin because you are a murderer. It's interesting that this guy knew that Absalom was already going to be king. He's he's basically now two miles from, from Jerusalem. So the information travels fast, fast and furious. David might have been almost the last person to know. And he's surrounded by guards, but there's there's so much dishonor and hatred in Shimei that he doesn't care. He doesn't care because he figures there's no authority here. There's no power here. There's no anointing here. And there's just cursing. He completely misreads what God's doing. He, he misreads this whole thing. He sees, he sees Absalom coming into power as God removing somebody who had done evil. We have to be careful when we observe circumstances around people's lives that we don't misread it and and too quickly judge what's going on. That's that's a harsh lesson lesson. And even even if it is rough and you want to say okay like this is this is you reap what you sow and they sowed, you know, discourse and murder and now this is happening to them, it's not a good idea to jump on it and to pile on. It's really not so the the armies, right? The troops are around David, and they're they're like getting pelted as well, right? They're protecting David from getting hit. And then you know Abishai. Remember Abishai is the one who who uh, killed. Did he? No. Joab killed uh, um, Abner. Uh, let's see, Abishai, Abishai. Well, his brother was killed by Abner, and and. Uh, and and the guards are there. Let me uh, try to think. Why? Why? I mean, anyways, doesn't matter. I mean, it does. No, no, he did kill Abner. That's why it's trouble. It's he's Joab's brother. He killed Abner. 
Yeah. All right. And he's a general in the army. Okay. So he's one of the generals. He's a big, he's a big deal. Sorry. I should have had that in my head. I don't know why. Oh, it's because I'm pushing through uh, this particular part of the chapter. And I wasn't sure I'd get this far. So uh, he's, he gets tired. <laughs> he gets tired of getting hit in the head. And he looks at David and he's like, uh, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king let me go cut off his head <laughs> i love it he's a cursed dog because the the family of saul has been cut off i mean he in 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 uh abishai's mind in abishai's mind david should have killed this guy a long time ago because the whole household of, of saul should have been wiped out but david showed kindness to the household of saul um because of jonathan and didn't kill everybody off when he became king so in Abishai's mind, this guy's living on borrowed time anyway. Let me just kill him now. And and in that, you know, in Shimmy's mindset, he's like, there's no authority here. No one can stop me. He's so filled with bitterness and offense. He's been offended by what happened to Saul's family from the beginning, and he blames David for the whole thing. And offense, when you don't deal with offense and it turns into bitterness, it just keeps this root just keeps going deeper and deeper and it starts to permeate everything. You literally can't see anything that's going on without the filter of offense in front of it. So you are constantly the victim, constantly being, you know, negative things are happening to you. You're constantly having issues, constantly in stress because everything's, everything good is going to eventually turn bad and you just know it. And it's going to turn bad not only around you, but it's going to turn bad for you. And that's the way Shimmy looks at this. And his whole life, even though David has brought great wealth into his family and great wealth into the nation and brought peace to the nation and expanded the boundary borders of the nation and and built the temple and did all of these great things in Shimmy's mind, there's been nothing but bad stuff that's happened since since David destroyed the house of Saul. And remember, it wasn't David who destroyed the house of Saul. It was Saul who had chased David around for for years in the wilderness, it was Saul who killed himself in the battlefield. David was on the other side in another country. He didn't kill Saul. He never wanted to kill Saul. He tried. I mean, he had opportunity and people wanted him to, and he refused to do it. But that's not the way Shimmy sees it, because offense will dis- will distort the view of, of what happens. And he held the offense not just for himself, but for all of Saul's family. And 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 the circumstances he's looking at, he thinks, is now God bringing back and restoring back to Saul and the family. Even though Shimei had nothing to do with, you know, he was not royalty. He was just connected to the family. He's like, finally, retribution. I'm going to heap the curses on David. And Abishai is like, I, I'll kill him now. You should have killed him years ago. I'll take him out right now. And David says, no, 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 don't do it. Listen. <laughs> it's not up to it's not up to us to kill him. If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who who am I to stop him? Maybe, you know, maybe he did. Now, I don't think God tells people to curse his children. I don't think God says, listen, you need to go curse somebody and call, you know, call fire down from heaven. Because he tells his disciples, Jesus tells his disciples, no. Right? The disciples want to call down fire and wipe out a town. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not how we do things. This is, that's not the kingdom of God. And David understood that. He's like, no, no, no. That's not how we do it. Listen, if, if it is of God, fine. He's trying to communicate with Abishai who believes this you know, this kind of violence is of God. He's like, fine, listen, if this is what God wants to do, let let it come from him. But if it's not, let God take care of it. It's not to us to kill him. He said, listen, my own flesh and blood, my son is trying to kill me. So I completely get that somebody from the house of Saul would also want to kill me. Someone from my own house wants to kill me. Just leave him alone. Let him curse. Who knows? Maybe... Maybe it is from the Lord. I don't know. And maybe the Lord will look on my misery and restore to me everything I was supposed to get instead of curses. Maybe the Lord's going to hear all this negative stuff coming from the enemy and his goodness is over going to ride it and turn it into something good.
Now that's a, a heavenly perspective. So David and his men continued along the road, and Shimei just would not let up. He just kept coming along, and he was going along the hillside on the other side of them, cursing them and throwing stones and shower, you know, buckets of dirt. It's almost like it says showering them with dirt. And the king and all the people arrived at their destination, which, if you if you remember, was the fords, which is basically a place where during the uh, it was like shallows. Um, and when the river was on its low end, it was very easy to, you know, to get across. But uh, late, it's probably there in the summer or fall, late summer or fall, because he wouldn't have gone to the fords if it was if it was spring, because it would have been very hard to cross because the water is in multiple ravines and uh, more difficult to get across. He would have went somewhere else, but the fords during uh, late late summer and early fall, the water would have been fairly shallow. And remember, they don't have carts; they have to walk. Uh, they do have a few donkeys, so that's good. But they've got to get everyone across: men, women, children, troops, everybody. So he goes there. He finally gets there. Shimmy probably knows where he's headed, or or has a good idea where he's going. By the time he exhausts himself throwing rocks and tossing buckets of dirt on everybody from a from a hillside. And he thinks he's doing the work of God. And I, I get bummed out. You know, there's a lot of Christians who, who feel that way. They see, him, they see someone in ministry. They see someone who has, who has a large influential uh, activity in the world, and they push against them. They push against them even more. They curse them. They pray against them. They, they thank God for, you know, for for the bad things that are happening to other people. And that's really the heart of Shimmy here. And really the heart of Shimmy is bitterness and anger, victim mindset, selfishness, uh, pride, arrogance. That's what comes across. And when you have those things in your heart and you see bad things happening to yourself, to another business, to another, another church, another ministry, and you think, yeah, get them, God. You have to trust me on this. God's not going to get them. But it sure does reveal an awful lot about you. What, is, what does Jesus teach us? You, you bless those who curse you. That's the heart of God. And God is God even in the Old Testament. His, his heart is to bless those who curse you. And that's in some way, that's what David did to Ab- Absalom. He left the palace in perfect working order. He left the support staff so that the palace would continue to operate without a hitch. He left all the wealth and riches behind. He left all his food and clothing behind. He left all the horses and the mules and everything. He left it all behind. He didn't destroy anything. He he blessed those who were cursing him. It's pretty pretty amazing when you break this all down. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it uh, next week. But I want to get all the way through. So David is now out of the city because the next verse is, meanwhile, back in the palace, basically. And we get to see what's going on as, as Absalom comes into the city while David is literally just outside the city walls. He is so close. He needs time to escape. And we'll see what happens and how the Lord works that out. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I know. Stop. We'll see how the we'll see how this works out. It's it's pretty awesome. I'll see you next week. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.